Thanks for listening to Great Battles in History. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you. You can write me, Daryl D., at greatbattleshistory at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at The Great Battles. I hope you enjoy the podcast. The leaders of the Crusader states were acutely aware that the balance of power was shifting decisively in favor of Saladin. The rulers of Jerusalem tried to raise field armies that could at least hold their own against Saladin's hosts. They mobilized every available man of the kingdom and also found money to hire more mercenaries. In 1183, a general council of the kingdom of Jerusalem agreed on a new tax that would be paid by all subjects, with the proceeds going exclusively to the defense of the land. Yet, to quote Steve Tibble, manpower was a hard ceiling that the Franks just could not break through. The Frankish settlers and demilitarized Eastern Christians could never provide enough soldiers. Moreover, scraping the bottom of the manpower barrel invariably led to a dilution in the quality of Jerusalem's army. A peasant or urban laborer conscripted into the host and issued with a spear and a shield was simply no match for a Turkic horse archer. Mercenaries were an invaluable source of experienced and equipped troops. However, there were limits to how many were available for hire. The greatest constraints of all involved the indispensable elite of the Frankish army, the knights. Expensive to equip and the products of a lifetime of training, knights required fiefs, but the kingdom of Jerusalem had simply run out of available land. With their manpower stretched to the limits, yet still falling far short of what was required to match Saladin, the Franks of Outremer turned to Europe for help. Throughout their existence, the Crusader states sent a stream of appeals for aid to the Pope and to the princes of Christendom. These appeals became urgent after 1180 and culminated with the dispatch of a high-level embassy from Jerusalem to the West in 1184. The ambassadors were Patriarch Heraculus, the kingdom's chief religious figure, and the masters of the military orders, Roger de Moulin of the hospital and Arnaud Taroja of the temple. To the rulers of the Holy Roman Empire, France, and England, Heraclius eloquently explained the plight of the Franks. The ambassadors demanded the calling of a third crusade, the dispatch of reinforcements for the armies of Jerusalem, and the sending of a European prince to take up the leadership of the crusader states. But the embassy was doomed to failure. The once fierce crusading fire had burned down to embers. Preoccupied by their own interests and appalled by the perils of Outremer, none of the great kings of Christendom would go to the succor of Jerusalem. The best that the ambassadors could get was a promise from Henry II of England and Philip II of France to levy a special tax for the aid of the Holy Land. According to the historian Gerald of Wales, Heraclius lamented that though everyone was willing to give money, none would go to Jerusalem. Forced to fall back on their own resources, the Franks came to increasingly depend on castles to help their outnumbered field armies defend their beleaguered lands. Castles had always covered the Crusaders' states. They ranged from simple stone towers to imposing fortresses that could shelter entire armies. But the most important and impressive were found on the eastern frontiers. From south to north, key castles included Montréal and Carac in Outre-Jordan, Belfort, Safad, and Chastelneuf in the Galilee, and Beaufort in the Bekaa Valley. Today, these crusader castles are considered the pinnacle of medieval military architecture. 
the greatest of them all, Crac de Chevalier, located on what was once the eastern marches of the county of Tripoli, is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Having withstood armies and nature for nine centuries, it is now imperiled by the Syrian civil wars. For the Franks, these frontier castles fulfilled three crucial functions. First, as we've seen with Le Chastelet at Jacob's Ford, they served as bases for offensives into enemy territory by raiding parties and even entire armies. The castle's second function is the best known, to act as defensive strongpoints. Yet how castles fulfilled this function is often misunderstood. Too many military history books blithely describe medieval fortresses blocking a pass or commanding an invasion route. In fact, they could do neither. In the absence of gunpowder artillery, castles could only project power beyond their walls to the range of an arrow or at most a catapult stone. Nowhere in our sources from the crusading period do we find a castle preventing or even hindering the advance of an army. The frontier castles were never intended to be a 12th century Maginot line, stopping Saladin's armies from penetrating into the interior of the crusader states. A castle's defensive power rested in its fighting men. Unless the garrison was kept within the walls by a close blockade, its troops could sally out to harass enemy forces and attack supply convoys. Even more importantly, the troops could contest control of the surrounding region. The frontier castle's defensive role was closely connected to their third function. They were, in R.C. Smale's words, repositories of lordship. Even if a Muslim army overran a region, the Franks would retain a colonel of dominion as long as their castles remained in their hands. Medieval armies could never remain in the field for long. Once they had departed and their danger had passed, the Franks could come out of their strongholds and restore their lordship over the surrounding area. The Muslims could thus only conquer the Frankish frontiers by taking the castles. To this task, however, Nur al-Din and Saladin were able to bring to bear their increasingly powerful armies. They employed the firepower of massed batteries of catapults and huge numbers of nomad archers to suppress a castle's archers and war engines. Meanwhile, large contingents of expert Khorasanian and Aleppan sappers undermined the walls. Once a section of the fortifications came down, Muslim warriors stormed through the breach and slaughtered the garrison. By the 1170s, the fortresses of the Franks were looking very vulnerable. The leaders of the Crusader states responded by remodeling their castles according to a revolutionary design. The new castles featured very deep ditches or dry moats surrounding two or even three layers of thick walls. Each layer was built higher than the one in front. The walls themselves were studded with tall round towers and defensive refinements like machicolations, bartizans, and casemates, essentially medieval pillboxes for archers. The deep ditches and thick walls effectively countered undermining. The high walls, tall towers, and covered firing positions created killing zones in front of and below the fortifications, making direct assaults prohibitively costly. By the 1180s, Frankish frontier castles could withstand sieges by even the strongest Muslim armies. They would only finally succumb once their garrisons ran out of food or water. In military parlance, these castles were hugely effective force multipliers, enabling small garrisons to defy overwhelming numbers and exert control over surrounding territories. From the Frankish perspective, 
the only drawback of the new castles was their enormous cost. Only a handful of feudal lords could ever hope to build one. As a result, most of the frontier castles were taken over by the military orders, which enjoyed vast resources thanks to their possession of extensive European estates. The Templars and Hospitallers came to control the marches of all the Crusader states, in the process further increasing their power and influence. These castles were key components of the Franks' new strategy of tenacious defense of their frontiers against seemingly unending Muslim invasions. Irresistible targets for Saladin's armies, the frontier castles would come under siege. Their garrisons would hold out until Jerusalem's field army came to their relief. The Franks would then be in a very strong defensive position, with their army backed up by a major fortress. Saladin and his commanders would then face the difficult choice of fighting a battle on unfavorable terms or lifting the siege and withdrawing. In any event, Muslim gains would be largely limited to some localized devastation. Although the Franks' strategic posture was overwhelmingly defensive, their best commanders sought any opportunity to strike back against their enemies. In 1182, Baldwin IV launched raids into the Hauran from Galilee. But the poster child for Frankish aggressiveness was the irrepressible Reynald de Châtillon. In early 1183, Reynald had eight small ships constructed at his castle of Carrack. He then disassembled them and transported the parts by camel to the Gulf of Aqaba. The vessels were rapidly reassembled and launched, crammed with Reynald's toughest troops. The eight ships sailed down into the Red Sea, where they proceeded to wreak havoc on Muslim shipping and coastal communities. But Reynald had an even bolder intention to land on the coast of Arabia near Medina, raid the holy city, and dig up the body of the Prophet Muhammad. Saladin bent all his resources to defeating the raids. Eventually, the raiders were all killed or captured before they could carry out Reynald's plan. Saladin had the prisoners publicly executed in towns and cities all over his domains. However, the raid had hugely humiliated the Kurdish warlord, not least because it mocked his claim to be the protector of Islam's holy places. The raid also showed that despite the annual invasions of their lands, the Franks were still full of fight. Yet the Frankish war effort would now be endangered by a political crisis within the Kingdom of Jerusalem. Baldwin IV's leprosy condemned him to an early death. He would also be unable to produce an heir. The succession, therefore, depended on his older sister Sibylla. Finding a husband for Sibylla became a matter of paramount concern, and so Baldwin was greatly relieved when she married William Longsword of Montferrat, an important Italian nobleman, in 1177. But William Longsword died within months of the marriage, and before the birth of his son with Sibylla, the future Baldwin V. The widowed Sibylla then became infatuated with a young Frenchman who had recently arrived in Outremer named Guy de Lusignan. In August 1180, Sibylla married Guy. These soap operatic developments created dangerous enmities among the nobles of Jerusalem. Despite being from a prominent noble house with a long crusading tradition, Guy de Lusignan was disliked by many of the Frankish nobility, who regarded him as a social climber who owed his prominence to his wife. He was particularly hated by Raymond of Tripoli. Count of the Crusader state of Tripoli and Lord of Galilee, Raymond was the greatest noble in the kingdom. 
He was also closely related to King Baldwin IV, and so had a claim to the throne. Meanwhile, Saladin continued waging his two-front war against the Zengids and the Crusader states. In June 1183, he achieved a notable triumph when he finally took control of Aleppo. The Zengids were driven back to their remaining lands in the Jazeera and Mosul. Saladin then turned on the Kingdom of Jerusalem. King Baldwin IV summoned the field army and ordered it to gather at one of its traditional mustering points, the springs of Safuria in Galilee. The king's call to arms was answered by the largest number of men in the history of the kingdom to that date, 15,000 infantry and 1,300 cavalry. To grasp just how impressive the Frankish war effort had become, we can look at the numbers involved in the 1215 Battle of Bouvines. In this battle, fought between the Holy Roman Empire and France, the two greatest kingdoms of Western Europe had armies of 1,200 horse and 6,000 foot. But King Baldwin then fell desperately ill. He gave command of the army to Guy de Lusignan and ordered the nobles of Jerusalem to obey him, which they did only grudgingly. In late September, Saladin led a powerful army over the Jordan. At first, Guy decided to remain at Safuria. This decision had considerable advantages. Safuria was well fortified, well watered, and well situated to stop Saladin from penetrating deeper into the kingdom. However, the Frankish nobles became outraged at the devastation caused by Saladin's marauding horsemen. Guy became the target of intense criticism and complaints. To quell growing unrest, he led the army out of Safuria and began shadowing Saladin's host. For eight days, the two forces sparred. The Muslim warlord sent waves of horse archers against the Franks, who were formed up in the fighting march. He also tried to provoke Guy into a pitched battle, but Guy refused to be baited. Saladin gave up and withdrew to Damascus. As in 1182, Saladin had been prevented from making any gains on Jerusalem's frontiers. Yet, he had inflicted heavy casualties on the Franks and devastated wide swaths of the kingdom. Perhaps most gallingly of all, the most imposing army ever fielded by Jerusalem had failed to bring the Muslims to battle. The campaign was widely considered a fiasco, and Guy de Lusignan was widely blamed. Baldwin now turned completely against his brother-in-law. The king removed Guy from command of the army and stripped him of his noble title of Count of Jaffa at Ascalon. But Baldwin went even further. He moved to prevent Guy and Sibylla from succeeding to the throne. Should Baldwin V die before reaching adulthood, the king declared that the Pope, the King of England, and the King of France would choose as Jerusalem's new ruler either Sibylla or her and Baldwin's younger sister Isabella. Until this committee of potentates made its choice, Raymond of Tripoli would govern the kingdom as regent. Even as this political crisis was unfolding within the kingdom of Jerusalem, Saladin returned to the attack in November 1183. His target was Kerak, the stronghold of Reynal de Châtillon in Outre-Jourdain. Kerak was a state-of-the-art castle, and it occupied an extremely strong natural site, the top of a ridge with sheer slopes on three sides. But Saladin was determined to take it in order to avenge himself on Reynald for his Red Sea raid. He led a powerful army, furnished with a full siege train and strong contingents of miners. Moreover, the defense of Kerak was made more difficult because the castle was hosting a wedding, 
Princess Isabella was marrying Humphrey of Toron, one of the great lords of Jerusalem. Saladin gallantly ordered his catapults not to bombard the tower in which the newlyweds were staying. Baldwin IV was now so ravaged by leprosy that he could no longer mount a horse. He had to be carried on a litter. Nevertheless, he raised his field army and marched on Karak. Afraid to be caught between the untaken fortress and the Frankish host, Saladin retreated. Saladin made Karak the target of his invasion of the Kingdom of Jerusalem in August 1184. He battered the castle's walls with a powerful battery of nine catapults and deluged the defenders with arrow storms from huge numbers of nomad archers. As the siege reached its climax, Karak teetered on the brink of falling. As a Muslim observer noted, no Frank can put his head out without receiving an arrow in the eye. Nothing remains but to fill in the ditch. Yet, as always, King Baldwin had been alert. He led the field army of Jerusalem across the Jordan just south of the Dead Sea, then came down on Saladin's host. Once again, unwilling to be caught between the hammer of the Frankish host and the anvil of Karak Castle, the Muslim warlord retreated. The rescue of Karak was Baldwin's last great deed. By April 1185, he was so ravaged by leprosy that he was forced to give up active rule and appoint Raymond of Tripoli as his regent. Soon after, he died, aged just 23. To me, Baldwin the Leper King remains an immensely sympathetic figure. He rose above unimaginable personal agony to bravely and tenaciously defend his kingdom and his people. Time and time again, he led his armies against Saladin and turned him back. At the same time, Baldwin was a tragic figure, for by meddling in his succession, he would help unleash the chaos and political instability that would lead directly to the catastrophe of Hattin. Incredibly, Saladin made no attempt to immediately exploit the death of his old adversary. Instead, in April 1185, he and Raymond of Tripoli agreed to a truce for four years. The annual invasions of the Kingdom of Jerusalem had not lived up to the warlord's expectations. Though the Muslim armies had inflicted losses on the Franks and had devastated large swaths of their countryside, they had failed to conquer any part of Jerusalem's frontiers. Saladin decided to shift his sights to easier targets. His old Muslim rivals, the Zengids of the Jazira and Mosul, appeared vulnerable. Saladin led his armies eastward. In the meantime, the political crisis in the Kingdom of Jerusalem exploded. In August 1186, the nine-year-old Baldwin V died. His death should have triggered the procedure established by Baldwin IV for the succession. Raymond of Tripoli, who had been the child king's regent, appeared in a strong position to control events. He clearly desired to take the throne for himself. Yet, he was outmaneuvered by Sibylla and Guy de Lusignan. The couple enjoyed the support of Patriarch Heraculus, Reynald de Châtillon, and Gerard de Ridfort, Grand Master of the Templars. In the events leading up to Hattin, Gerard would be a villain worthy of a Shakespeare tragedy or maybe even a James Bond movie. He had come to Outremer as a mercenary knight and become a follower of Raymond of Tripoli. Gerard sought to marry the heiress to the lordship of Botron. Instead, Raymond was persuaded to give the heiress's hand in marriage to a Pisan merchant who had offered him her weight in gold. Gravely insulted and furious at Raymond, Gerard broke with him and joined the Templars. 
he rapidly rose through the ranks of the order and became its master in 1184. With the help of these three powerful figures, Sibylla and Guy de Lusignan took control of Jerusalem and shut its gates to Raymond of Tripoli. Sibylla's supporters lobbied her to divorce the wildly unpopular Guy, and she initially appeared to agree. Patriarch Heraclius then crowned Sibylla queen. Immediately, Sibylla reaffirmed her marriage to Guy and proclaimed him king. There was now the very real danger of civil war. Raymond of Tripoli demanded the lords of Jerusalem support him. However, the lords refused to take up arms against a duly consecrated queen and king. Raymond then retreated to Tiberias, the capital of his lordship of Galilee. There, he called for help from Saladin. The Muslim warlords sent him troops and promised whatever assistance he needed. In return, Raymond allowed Muslim raiders to cross his lands. For Saladin could now devote his full attention to the jihad against the Franks. In 1185, his armies had swept through the Jazeera. By December, Mosul, the last stronghold of the Zengids, was besieged. Three months later, its lord agreed to become Saladin's vassal. The power of the Zengid dynasty was now broken. Saladin could add the numerous and superb warriors of the Jazeera and Mosul to his armies. Yet these latest successes against Muslim enemies opened up the warlord to loud and widespread criticism that he was once again not living up to his claim to be the champion of the counter-crusade. Saladin was therefore seeking any excuse to renew the war against Jerusalem. Reynald de Chatillon handed him one. Even as turmoil engulfed Jerusalem, Reynald remained almost pathologically aggressive. Early in 1187, he learned that a great caravan traveling from Syria to Egypt was passing near his stronghold of Karak. Reynald raided it, seizing goods and taking prisoners. King Guy de Lusignan was appalled, knowing that this attack endangered the truce with Saladin. He ordered Reynald to release the prisoners, restore the goods, and pay Saladin compensation. Reynald's reply was pure defiance. He would not do so, for he was lord of his land, just as Guy was lord of his and he had no truces with the Saracens. Because he could not afford to alienate one of his closest and most powerful supporters, Guy had to swallow Reynald's answer. Saladin was furious at Reynald, vowing, in the words of his biographer, Baha al-Din, that when God gave him into his hands, he would slay him personally. But the Kurdish warlord had his reason to end the truce and declare war against the kingdom of Jerusalem. He mobilized troops from across his empire, which now extended from Tunisia to Egypt to Syria and northern Iraq. In April 1187, no less than four Muslim armies attacked the Crusader states. One army, under Saladin's nephew Taki al-Din, threatened the Principality of Antioch to prevent it from sending reinforcements to Jerusalem. Saladin's Egyptian army marched through the Sinai and into Outre-Jordan. Near Karak, it was joined by the warlord himself, leading his forces from Damascus. The combined armies then thoroughly ravaged Reynald's lands. The fourth army was led by Saladin's son, Al-Afdal, and it had the mission of raiding deep into the kingdom of Jerusalem. Al-Afdal sent a request to Raymond of Tripoli, asking him to allow the raiders passage through his lands. Raymond reluctantly agreed. 7,000 Turkic cavalry rode across Galilee, 
under the command of one of Saladin's best generals, the emir of Haran and Edessa, who is nicknamed Gokbori, in Turkish, the Blue Wolf. The knights of the military orders were on the alert. 130 of them gathered at the springs of Cresson to shadow Gokbori's force. Despite their small numbers, the knight monks were commanded by Gerard de Ridfort, master of the Templars, and his hospitaller counterpart, Roger de Moulin. When Gerard spotted the first Turkic horseman approaching, he urged an immediate charge. The master of the hospital, as well as the senior Templar commanders, countered that this would be madness. Gerard became infuriated. Rounding on James de Mailly, Marshal of the Templars, Gerard accused him of cowardice, saying, You love your blonde head too well to want to lose it. James could only spit out that he would remain on the field like a man. By such insults, Gerard browbeat his comrades into a headlong rush at the Turks. Amazingly, the Templars and Hospitallers did well at first. All of the Muslim sources record that the battle was closely fought, with one even writing that it was a battle that turned black hair white. The knights pierced deep into the Turkic ranks, cutting down many and putting others to flight. But weight of numbers quickly told. The Turks surrounded the knights and overwhelmed them. James de Mailly fought with furious valor until he was shot down. The master of the hospital died, as did almost all of the other knights. Gokbori had the knights' heads stuck to the end of lances, and he displayed them triumphantly as he passed Tiberias. From the walls of the town, Raymond of Tripoli could only helplessly watch this ghastly parade. In spite of the small number of knights engaged, the springs of Cresson was a disaster for the Franks. The Templars and the Hospitallers were the elite shock troops of the field army of Jerusalem. They had now lost one-sixth of their strength even before the opening of the main campaign. In another sign that the finger of luck or providence, God or Allah, was at work, Gerard de Ridfort was just one of three survivors of the battle. Why did he commit such an awful blunder? It is just possible he did not appreciate the overwhelming size of Gokbori's raiding force. But an even more important reason was his all-consuming hatred of Raymond of Tripoli. Gerard had thought he had spotted a priceless opportunity to humiliate his archenemy by defeating the raiders Raymond had allowed to pass through his lands. In any case, Gerard de Ridfort was not done inflicting serious harm to the Christian cause. By late June, Saladin had gathered all of his forces on the Golan Heights. It was the largest army he had ever commanded, 40,000 strong. At least 12,000 belonged to his Askar. In the decades since Montgisard, Saladin had lavished his regular cavalrymen with better mounts, improved weapons, and heavier armor. Turkic nomad mercenaries were present in huge numbers, and there was also a considerable body of infantry, including many Ghazis, or religious volunteers. Saladin's personal secretary, Imad al-Din al-Isfahani, wrote rhapsodically about the size and splendor of his master's host. The earth adorned itself in new clothes. Heaven opened so that the angels could descend from its gates. The ship-like tents rode at anchor in this expanse, and the battalions flooded in, wave upon wave. Swords and iron-tipped lances rose like stars. Many colored banners marked out the contingents from Egypt, Damascus, Aleppo, the Jazeera, Erbil, Mardin, and Mosul. But above them all flowed the bright yellow standards of Saladin and his Ayyubid clan. 
King Guy de Lusignan answered by ordering the field army of Jerusalem to muster at the springs of Saphoria. After the debacle of Cresson, Raymond of Tripoli reconciled with Guy and Sibylla. He brought to Saphoria the powerful feudal contingents of Tripoli and Galilee. In addition, at this moment of maximum danger, Gerard de Ridfort broke open the great money chests Henry II of England had confided to the care of the Order of the Temple. The English king had intended the money to fund his own pilgrimage to the east. The Templar master now used it to hire mercenaries. The army was the largest ever raised by the Franks of Outremer. 1,200 knights, 4,000 turcopoles, 15,000 infantry. The power of Jerusalem must have been every bit as splendid and brave a sight as Saladin's host. Knights in bright mail, covered by surcoats in every color, save for the knight monks of the military orders, who stood out by the very plainness of their habits. White with red crosses for the Templars, black with white crosses for the Hospitallers. Long-haired turcopoles and turbans, and silks over lamellar or leather armor, their compact, powerful bows, and beautifully decorated cases. And countless infantrymen, in simple helmets, chainmail shirts, or jack-of-plates, long spears or heavy crossbows on their shoulders. Finally, the army was bolstered by the true cross. It was traditionally carried into battle by the Patriarch of Jerusalem. However, Heraclius had decided to remain safely behind in the warm embrace of his mistress, Pachia de Rivery, who is known as Madame la Patriarchesse. The holy relic was placed in the care of the Bishop of Acre. Saladin entered the kingdom of Jerusalem on the last day of June 1187. He and his army crossed the Jordan River at Al-Sanabra, just south of the Sea of Galilee, and then ascended the steep western slope of the Jordan Valley. The Muslim host established its main camp at Kafr Sabt in the heart of Galilee. Saladin first carried out a thorough reconnaissance of the surrounding area, during which he identified the plain around the Horns of Atin as a suitable site for a battle. He then dispatched detachments of Turkic light horse in all directions to raid, pillage, and burn the Galilean countryside. Finally, he laid siege to Raymond of Tripoli's capital of Tiberias. In Raymond's absence, its defense was conducted by his wife, the Countess Ishiva. Saladin's moves were cunningly calculated to provoke the Franks into action. Instead, the army of Jerusalem was paralyzed for three days by increasingly bitter arguments among King Guy and his nobles about what to do. These disputes within the Frankish leadership were in fact the continuation of the earlier conflicts over power in Jerusalem. Many of the Frankish lords, led by Renal de Châtillon and Gerard de Ridfort, urged Guy de Lusignan to attack Saladin at once. They correctly pointed out that King Baldwin IV had time and again repulsed the Muslim armies by acting quickly and aggressively. But Raymond of Tripoli and his supporters argued that the field army should remain at Saphoria. This argument too had merits. At Saphoria, the army was in a strong defensive position and well-placed to block Saladin from advancing deeper into the kingdom. Even if Tiberius fell, Saladin would not be able to keep his huge host in the field for very long. Soon, it would disband, as his troops grew frustrated by a lack of plunder and went home. This argument was given greater weight by the fact that Raymond was willing to put his wife and family at risk of capture or even death. Despite Reynald and Gerard accusing him of bad faith, Raymond's arguments carried the day. 
the army of Jerusalem remained at Sepharia. On July 2nd, Saladin stormed into Tiberias, forcing Countess Ashiva and the defenders to take refuge in the town's citadel. When word of these events reached Sepharia, it provoked another, even more acrimonious debate about what to do. Once again, Reynald de Châtillon, Gerard de Ridfort, and many of the lords of Jerusalem argued that the army had to march out at once to the relief of Tiberias. Their eagerness to confront a massive enemy force was not irrational. The army of Jerusalem had won against long odds before, and this time it was stronger than ever. But Raymond of Tripoli continued to argue forcefully in favor of the army remaining at Sepharia. Again, King Guy sided with him. After the council of war disbanded, Gerard de Ridfort remained behind in the king's tent. In a fiery speech, the Templar Grand Master cunningly tied Count Raymond's ambition and his past treacheries to his advice to stand fast at Sepharia. He then urged Guy to challenge Saladin to battle. Sire, do not trust the advice of Count Raymond, for he is a traitor, and you well know that he has no love for you and wants you to be put to shame and lose the kingdom. I advise you to move off immediately together with the rest of us and let us go and defeat Saladin. This is the first crisis that you have encountered since you became king. If you do not leave this camp, Saladin will come to attack you, and if you withdraw at his attack, the shame and reproach will be all the greater for you. Guy must now have remembered how his decision in 1183 to merely shadow Saladin rather than engage him in battle had led to his downfall, and how Raymond of Tripoli had profited from it. He could, he realized, be making the same mistake again. Early the next day, July 3, 1187, Guy de Lusignan announced that the army would march immediately for Tiberias and the relief of Countess Eshiva. When a shocked Raymond of Tripoli and his supporters questioned the decision and demanded to know who had influenced the king, Guy declared imperiously, You have no right to ask me by whose counsel I am doing this. I want you to get on your horses and leave here and head towards Tiberias. There was no hint of dissension by the time the Franks issued out of the camp at Sepharia. The army of Jerusalem was in three divisions, formed one behind the other in column. Traditionally, the lord on whose lands the host was fighting took the lead, so the vanguard consisted of Raymond of Tripoli and his Galilean contingent, tough fighters with considerable experience of frontier fighting. Next came the center division, made up of troops from the fiefs of Jerusalem under King Guy de Lusignan. Accompanying the king was the true cross. The rear guard consisted of the Templars and the Hospitallers. As the most disciplined troops in the army, the knight monks were entrusted with the most exposed and difficult position. Command of the rear guard was entrusted to Balian of Ibelin, one of the great lords of the kingdom. The whole column, 20,000 men and thousands of animals, stretched for a kilometer or more. It was a fighting march, so each division was a rectangle, with the infantry forming the outer sides, the cavalry and the all-important horses sheltering in the middle. From Sepharia, Tiberias was 26 kilometers to the east. The army of Jerusalem's route followed a Roman road, running along a valley called Batov by the Franks. The valley's northern side was formed by the steep slopes of Mount Turan. Halfway to Tiberias was the village of Turan, which, in the summer of 1187, had ample springs. Beyond Turan, the road forked. One route led south to Saladin's encampment at Kafr Sabt. 
the other route, climbed a plateau, passed beneath the hills called the Horns of Hattin, then descended to the Sea of Galilee and Tiberias. Muslim cavalry were screening Safuria, so the march of the army of Jerusalem was detected immediately. Word was sent to Saladin, who was overseeing operations at Tiberias. He rushed to the scene, at the same time calling up his forces. Like the Franks, he deployed his army into three divisions. The right wing was commanded by his able and ambitious nephew Taki al-Din. The left wing by the fearsome Gokbori, victor of the springs of Cresson. These two wings had the mission of harassing the Frankish column, so were given the bulk of the Turkic light horse. Saladin personally commanded the 3rd Division, the center, which was comprised of most of the Askar cavalry and all of the infantry. It took time for Saladin to gather and arrange his units. The army of Jerusalem initially only faced scattered harassment from bands of Turkic horse archers. These were easily brushed aside. At this stage, the Franks' main challenges stemmed from the conditions of their march. The thousands of men and animals threw up enormous clouds of dust, which got into eyes, throats, and every nook and chink of armor. Everyone soon bore a thick coating of brown, red, and yellow dirt. By mid-morning, summertime temperatures in Galilee were usually in the mid-30s centigrade. The Frankish soldiers began to find their armor, particularly their helmets, increasingly uncomfortable. Yet they dared not take their helmets off because of the increasingly frequent showers of Turkic arrows. Then there was thirst. A horse requires 27 liters a day of water, an adult male, two and a half liters a day. The army could not carry anything close to the enormous quantities of water required. A Saladin secretary, Imad al Din, observes, the dog star, burned with unrelenting heat. The troops drank the contents of their flasks, but this could not slake their thirst. Nevertheless, the army of Jerusalem completed the first stage of its march, 14 kilometers to the village of Turan, in good order and with its fighting spirits high. The village's springs afforded the Franks a precious opportunity to slake their thirst, refill their flasks, and water their horses. Jerusalem's army hesitated. From a nearby hill, Saladin looked down at the enemy and grew very worried. If Guy de Lusignan chose to remain at Turan, his army would be established in a well-watered, highly defensible place, perfectly positioned to threaten either Tiberias or the Muslim encampment at Kafr Sab. Saladin's army would be pinned down, a situation that it would not be able to maintain for very long. So, it was undoubtedly with enormous relief that Saladin watched the army of Jerusalem move off. Reaching the crossroads just beyond Turan, the Franks took the northern route that climbed up the plateau toward the horns of Hattin. The Kurdish warlord believed that Guy's blunder in marching beyond Turan was so foolish and so fatal that it could only have been the result of diabolic intervention. The devil seduced Guy into doing the opposite of what he had in mind. Saladin explained in a letter to the Abbasid Caliph in Baghdad, and made to seem good to him what was not his real wish and intention, so he left the water and set out towards Tiberias. Saladin was quick to pounce on Guy's mistake. He sent troops to move behind the Frankish column and occupy Turan and foul its springs, so that the army of Jerusalem could not return there. Then he ordered Taki al-Din and Gokbori to attack. 
Wave after wave of Turkic cavalry surged at the Frankish column, suddenly appearing out of the all-engulfing dust, shooting storms of arrows before dashing away again. It was customary among the Turks to accompany their attacks with a terrifying cacophony of noise from war cries, trumpets, and especially enormous tubal drums and nakarat kettle drums. Saladin was well prepared for a prolonged phase of wearing down the enemy. He had brought with his army 400 wagon and 70 camel loads of arrows, ensuring that his warriors would have plenty of missiles to shoot. This onslaught was exactly what the Frankish fighting march was designed to withstand. The soldiers of Jerusalem at first resisted the Turks calmly and coolly. At each attack, the heavy infantry halted to present a wall of overlapping shields and bristling gleaming spearheads. From behind the cover they provided, crossbowmen shot in relays, slamming volleys of bolts into the Turks well before they could return fire with their own bows. Wherever the horse archers came too close, the knights would charge out from behind the shield wall, cutting down any Turk too slow to flee. Whenever a Frank was wounded or killed, he was dragged into the center of the fighting box, so that the foe could not see the losses they were inflicting and so take heart. Yet soon enough, Saladin's enormous numbers began to tell. Whenever an attack was driven off, another simply took its place. The Turkic horsemen especially concentrated their efforts on the rear guard. Even worse, any relief that the Franks had enjoyed from their brief halt at the springs of Turan soon dissipated, and they were again suffering badly from thirst. The best hope that the army of Jerusalem had to end its torment was to launch its knights in a powerful battle-winning charge against Saladin's main body. Yet the Muslim warlord cunningly kept his center division some distance to the south of the Franks, close enough to be menacing, just far enough away to be out of reach. As dusk approached, the Frankish army had advanced just four or five kilometers beyond the Turan crossroads to reach the vicinity of a small village called Mascana. By then, the army was in crisis. One Christian chronicler noted that the Turks kept engaging them and so impeded their progress. The heat was very great, and that was a source of great affliction, and in that valley, there was nowhere they could find water. In particular, the rear guard was floundering. Beset by unrelenting Turkic assaults, it was constantly falling behind the two other divisions. Raymond of Tripoli now sent an urgent message to King Guy. We must hurry and pass through this area so that we and our men may be safe near the water. Otherwise, we will be in danger of making camp at a waterless spot. Raymond's advice was hard and cold because it entailed sacrificing the elite troops of the rear guard in order to rescue the rest of the army. At first, King Guy appeared to agree, but then he made a second blunder. He halted the army so that the rear guard could catch up, then ordered that camp be made for the night. According to sources particularly favorable to Raymond of Tripoli, he is supposed to have responded to these orders by lamenting, Alas, Lord God, the battle is over. We have been betrayed unto death. The kingdom is finished. Whatever Raymond's reaction, the decision to halt condemned the Frankish army to a night of misery. Once again, Saladin was quick to take advantage of his adversary's mistake. He sent his infantry up to the high ground north of the road. His own Askar cavalry remained to the south. Kokbori's left wing prevented any retreat to Turan, while Taki al-Din's right wing was astride the road in front of the Franks. The army of Jerusalem was now surrounded. 
as one Christian chronicler described the situation. When the Saracens saw that the Christians were making camp, they were delighted. They camped around the Christian host so close that they could talk to one another, and if a cat had fled from the Christian host, it could not have escaped without the Saracens taking it. That night, the Christians were in great discomfort. Great harm befell the host, since there was not a man or a horse that had anything to drink that night. During the night, Muslim troops stealthily approached to shoot showers of arrows into the camp. They also set the dry brush and grass around the camp on fire, so that the smoke and the heat worsened the effects of thirst. To damage the enemy's morale even further, Saladin ordered jars of water to be brought up by camels, and then poured out before the Franks' eyes. As dawn approached, the commanders of the army of Jerusalem met for a final council of war. Both Renal de Châtillon and Gerard de Ridfort urged King Guy to deploy for battle. A knight named John, who had served with the Turks as a mercenary, explained that the best tactic was to marshal all of the cavalry and then launch a mass charge directly at where the yellow Ayyubid banners were thickest, indicating the spot where Saladin and his leading emirs were standing. To the great credit of the Frankish troops, they still had enough discipline and determination to reform the fighting march and move on. The army aimed for the horns of Hattin. These twin hills, the peaks of an extinct volcano, rose parallel to the road to a height of 326 meters. Beyond the horns was the village of Hattin, which possessed ample springs. According to one Christian account of the battle, the Franks formed their battle lines and hurried to pass through this region in the hope that when they had regained a watering place and had refreshed themselves, they could attack and fight the foe more vigorously. Saladin did not intend to give them that opportunity. Although he still kept his main body at a safe distance from the Franks, his Turkic horsemen and infantry intensified their wearing down attacks. As the morning passed, the Franks' thirst became worse, their casualties increased, their disorder grew. The army of Jerusalem struggled on until it reached the Western Horn. There, the Templars and Hospitallers of the rear guard decided on their own initiative to mount a charge. Launched with the discipline and order that were the trademarks of the military orders, the charge initially gained some success. But crucially, the charge of the orders was not supported by the rest of the Frankish army. Saladin now committed his fresh Askar cavalry. They absorbed the night monks' momentum and sent them reeling back. After the failure of this effort, the rear guard was driven into King Guy's center. The two divisions became hopelessly intermingled. Meanwhile, Raymond of Tripoli's vanguard was steadily moving forward, outstripping the rest of the army. At some point, Either acting on his own or under orders from King Guy, Raymond of Tripoli assembled his knights and launched a charge. His target was Taki al-Din's division, and his intention was to break through and hopefully clear the road ahead for the rest of the army. He and his knights plunged into Taki al-Din's Askar, striking down many of the enemy with their lances, but their charge rapidly lost way and the enemy engulfed them. Only Raymond and a handful of survivors managed to cut their way to safety. They fled from the battle and escaped to Tyre. The discipline of the army of Jerusalem finally broke down. The surviving infantry of the vanguard and the co-mingled rearguard center division retreated up the steep slopes of the horns, abandoning the knights. One source stresses that the leaders of the army pleaded with the footmen to come down and continue the fight. 
the king, the bishop of Acre, and others sent word, begging them to return to defend the Lord's cross, the Lord's army, and themselves. They replied, We are not coming, because we are dying of thirst, and we will not fight. Again the command was given, and again they persisted in their refusal. Stuck in the basin between the two horns, the Frankish commanders made a last desperate effort. They ordered the army's tents pitched to provide some protection against the Muslim arrow barrages. Behind their cover, the surviving knights formed up, the Turkpoles, sergeants, and squires lining up behind them to add numbers and weight. Then the Frankish cavalry charged for Saladin's banners. Saladin's son, Al-Afdal, 17 years old and fighting in his first pitched battle, has left a remarkable record of this climactic moment of the Battle of Hattin. I was alongside my father during this battle, the first I had witnessed. When the king of the Franks was on the hill, they made a formidable charge against the Muslims facing them, so that they drove them back to my father. I looked towards him, and he was overcome by grief and his complexion pale. He took hold of his beard and advanced, crying out, Give the lie to the devil. The Muslims rallied, returned to the fight, and climbed the hill. When I saw the Franks withdraw, I shouted for joy. We have beaten them. But the Franks rallied and charged again like the first time, and drove the Muslims back to my father. He acted as he had on the first occasion, and the Muslims turned upon the Franks and drove them back to the hill. I again shouted, We have beaten them. But my father said, Be quiet. We have not beaten them until that tent falls. As he was speaking to me, the tent of King Guy fell. The final acts of the battle then unfolded. After their charges had failed, and the last of their horses had been killed or incapacitated by wounds, the Frankish knights continued to fight on on foot. The Frankish infantry were driven down from the heights and pitched into the roiling melee at the foot of the horns. At last, exhausted and dehydrated, the survivors simply gave up and sat on the ground. The jubilant soldiers of Saladin roved about the battlefield. A few, overcome by zeal and bloodlust, continued killing now helpless enemies, but most were interested in making prisoners of the exhausted and despondent Franks. Captives who could be sold as slaves represented valuable booty. But this time, so many were taken that the prices at the nearby slave market of Damascus collapsed, with one contemporary Muslim report claiming the Christian captives were so numerous that one was sold for a pair of sandals. Saladin ordered no mercy for certain prisoners. All the Templars and Hospitallers were executed, many by the Muslim clerics and holy men who had accompanied the warlord's army. The same punishment was meted out to the Turkopoles, who were regarded as apostates to Islam. Many of the leading lords and commanders of Jerusalem had been taken alive. Amazingly, Gerard de Ridfort was the only Templar to survive, spared because of his high rank. But the most important captures were King Guy de Lusignan and Reynald de Châtillon. Saladin ordered the pair brought to his tent. Reynald was offered conversion to Islam as the only way to save his life. When he refused, Saladin personally executed him. Guy fell to his knees, cowering and fearing the same fate. But Saladin raised him up and reassured him by explaining, it has not been customary for princes to kill princes, but this man transgressed his limits, so he has suffered what he has suffered. Finally, in addition to these prisoners, the true cross had also fallen into Muslim hands.
the largest field army ever raised by the Kingdom of Jerusalem, was annihilated at Hattin. Out of the 1,200 knights who fought in the battle, only 200 seemed to have escaped the stricken field, among them Raymond of Tripoli and Balian of Ibeline. Of the infantry, virtually all were killed or captured. Saladin's victory at Hattin was as complete as Hannibal's at Cannae. Among both medieval and modern historians, Guy de Lusignan has borne much of the blame for the catastrophe that befell the Franks. Although he had raised a powerful army, he seemed to have had no idea how to use it. Instead, Guy allowed himself to be drawn into the political infighting that had long fractured his kingdom. As a result, he dithered while Saladin established himself in a strong position in Galilee. His need to present himself as a strong monarch led to the fatal decision to march out of Safuria to relieve Tiberias. Guy then made two further serious blunders. First, he failed to halt at the strong position of Turan. And second, when he did stop the army, it was at the waterless site of Mascana, where it was promptly surrounded by Saladin and harassed through the night. During the climax of the fighting on July 4th, Guy de Lusignan had shown himself to be personally courageous. However, his tactical handling of the army had been inept. Above all, he had thrown away the Franks' one great advantage, their charges, by first failing to support the military order's attack, then launching a series of uncoordinated and unsupported assaults of his own. Yet Saladin won the battle more than King Guy lost it. In his earlier campaigns against the Kingdom of Jerusalem, Saladin's generalship had rarely risen beyond the level of solid competence. At Hattin, he commanded his forces flawlessly. Most impressively, Saladin demonstrated that he had learned valuable lessons from past encounters with the Franks. He first raised and brought to bear a massive army. Operationally, it gave him tremendous flexibility. Saladin could simultaneously devastate enemy territory, beleaguer Tiberias, and threaten the field army of Jerusalem at Safuria. Tactically, his massive numbers of horsemen swamped the Frankish fighting march. Next, his decision to besiege Tiberias was a masterstroke. It placed unbearable pressure on King Guy either to march and risk battle on ground of Saladin's choosing or appear weak by losing the town without a fight. Then, once engaged in action, the Kurdish warlord used the combination of relentless hit-and-run attacks and the effects of heat and thirst to wear down the foe. While this process unfolded, he carefully maneuvered the main body of his host so that it was never exposed to a charge. Finally, when the Franks did manage to launch their charges, his rearmed, retrained, and reinforced Askar succeeded in absorbing and nullifying their blows. In sum, Saladin's performance was brilliant.